From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out between the 4th of December and the 10th of December 1944. Yeah, uh, the men of 52nd Lowland Division in Northwest Europe would have been reading this newsletter every day, and between us, we'll be catching the articles that even now jump off the page. Uh, so, what have we got this week, Marin? Well, this week I think the pages hold a little bit from all over everywhere. I think we've honed in on articles about Russia, Greece, Greenock and a couple of updates from the Netherlands. And the Army Education Branch is clearly trying to keep everyone up to speed with everything. Elsewhere in the world, this is Nobel Prize week in Sweden. The French government has nationalised five banks and The Bells of St Mary is released starring Ingrid Bergman and Bing Crosby. But shall we find out where the jocks are first? Do you want to tell us where the men of the 52nd Lowland Division are and what's going on? Well, it's all changed this week for the 52nd Lowland Division. So last episode, we had them just south of the River Mass near the Dutch town of Sertogenbosch. And this week, a couple of days into this week, they're going to travel about 200 miles south to the German-Dutch border, just around about the German city of Geilenkirchen. Uh, and in fact, they're going to be stationed there for, for well over a month, nearly two months, and they're going to be involved in some pretty heavy fighting. But to begin with, they're down there and they're going to be taking over, um, holding the line duties, and then they're going to be getting ready for something called Operation Shears. Now, Operation Shears is the uh, operation to clear the Roar Triangle. Now, that is actually cancelled uh, a little bit after this week, uh, but it means they go into an even longer time sitting in the line in the middle of winter, keeping the Germans at bay. Um, and the weather really does take a nasty turn while they're down there. It starts to snow and it starts to freeze. Um, the interesting thing is um, they're actually um, right at the bottom of the British line uh, okay. and they're the far right. And it's actually on the join, on the connection between the British and the American armies. Mm -hmm. And that becomes quite important as we get into December. But I won't, I won't give all, everything away now. We'll, we'll come to that uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay. All right. Should we get going then? December 4th, 1944. British attack at Venlo, Americans cross Saar. Reports of gains on all fronts were made yesterday. On the Western Front, opposition is stiff, but all six armies registered some advances. On the Eastern Front, the Russians are rapidly overrunning the remaining parts of Hungary. In Italy, 8th Army troops have improved their position around Faenza, while in the Far East, Kaliwa has been captured. Well, that's a pretty good summary, isn't it? Not bad at all. I mean, if you read that... Uh, the war will be over in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Quick question, though. The yeah. six armies. Go on. See if you can, see if you can tell me who the six armies were. Oh God, Marin. I mean, I mean, you've got Twelfth uh, Army, Twenty First Army Group. You've got the First Canadian. Oh God, I don't know. Go on. You you tell me. You sound like you might know. Well, 
uh, when when I first read this, I my brain just went, well, I can just rattle off six armies, and I went, it's a bit more complicated than that. Do you remember John Keegan, Sir John Keegan? Uh, yes, of course. Of course, yeah. He wrote the introduction to to with the Jocks. Yep. He wrote a book called Six Armies in Normandy. From it's D-Day. a fantastic book. It's a phenomenal book from D Day to the Liberation of Paris, June sixth. August the 25th, 1944. Mm. So so that was what my, my head first did. And I thought, oh, yeah, six armies in Normandy. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. This update is talking about six armies registering some advances on the Western Front. Yeah. Okay. It's a bit broader than that. American, British, English and Scottish, Canadian, French, German, Polish. But it wasn't clear whether they were just talking about allies or whether they were talking about Axis forces. And then, of course, you've got... Like, the South Africans, you got the Irish. So I did some digging. Do you know where this six armies thing comes from? Go on. It comes from a map, believe it or believe it not. In of the, course it does. Of course it does. In the Observer this week, the Observer newspaper this week, there is a syndicated map that shows six Allied armies: the French First Army, the American Seventh Army, the American Third Army, the American Thirteenth Army, the American Ninth Army, and the British Second Army. Mm. No. The American Ninth Army is interesting because if you remember back in the introduction, I said there's a join between the British and the Americans. Well, it's the American Ninth Army that's actually joined on to the bottom of the British Army, the, the British Twelfth Army. Well, there you go. That explains that go. then, doesn't it? That explains everything, doesn't it? And of course, then they get grouped into army groups and then we get into a whole different conversation. Are you going to make it confusing again now? No, no, no. There's 21st Army Group, which is the British one. That's under Monty. Okay. Next article. Clackety-ping. Clackety-ping. 4th of December, 1944. Holland under Nazi rule, part one, by a Dutch tradesman. Do I have to do this in a Dutch accent? No, you don't. (laughs) I'll tell you what, if you do this in a Dutch accent, I shall do Scots accents again. Okay, fair enough. The Dutch have ever been a freedom-loving nation. But what about life under Nazi rule? After a few years, it was no longer possible to live on what the Germans were pleased to leave us. Prices in the black market began to rise fantastically. After the first year of war, it cost more than 10 guilders for one kilo of butter or fat. And this was only the beginning, for not long after this, the price for which the same quantity had gone up to 40 guilders. It has kept rising ever since. Needless to say, one needed a lot of money to buy the rations. It is easy to imagine what life for the poor was like. I remember once how I exchanged an old winter coat for two bottles of colza oil, but it did not last very long. Part two will be published tomorrow. Mm. Um, before we go on to part two, can you explain mm-hmm. what colza oil is? Colza oil? Colza <laughs> oil is um, rapeseed oil. Oh, right. They used to use it um, not only for cooking, um, but I think they also used to use it a bit like kerosene. They used to use it in lamps as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's very, very, very modern nowadays, colza oil. You have it in a nice vinaigrette. The article continues on the 5th of December. Holland under Nazi rule. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, the Nazi rule of terror set in. They soon found we were an intractable lot, for we more or less politely refused to have anything to do with them. Only our Dutch Nazis were tools in their hands. The rest of us dodged their manhunters as best we could. When there was sabotage, the Germans would arrest a number of our prominent citizens and threaten to shoot them if there was any further trouble. In this way, some of our best countrymen were innocently put to death. Every day brought new coercive measures. 
The Germans were pressed for labour and no man was safe from them. Our own Nazis assiduously assisted them in this hunt for manpower. At the instigation of the Germans, a kind of civil police force was formed whose duty it was to find workers for Germany. As for Nazi propaganda, it failed completely in our country. The eloquence of the learned Dr Goebbels was quite lost on us. We simply did not listen, or if we did, it was to detect the note of growing anxiety in his voice. For a long time, we were able to listen to the BBC till at last the Germans severed the last tie which bound us to our friends overseas. They robbed us of our radio sets as they deprived us of most of our possessions. While most of us persisted in the attitude of passive or active resistance, some of our women and girls lowered themselves by taking up with the invaders. Life in Holland was almost unbearable during the last year of the German occupation. No man was safe from them and they had no scruples about violating the sanctity of our homes. One must have lived under Nazi rule to appreciate the full meaning of the word freedom. That's quite a thing, isn't it? That's quite a thing. I think the, the the sentence that jumped out is about. It's only a short sentence, but the sentence about the, the women who uh, inverted commas lowered themselves by taking up with the invader. I think it's um it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? It is a good bit more complicated than that. Yeah, uh, I mean there were there were Dutch women that, that set up with German soldiers, started relationships with them. Uh, and of course, I think if anybody's ever seen something like Band of Brothers uh, and things like that, or even seen uh, some photographs, you'd see the, the the Dutch women that had their heads shaved as part mm. of the humiliation by the crowd. Yeah. yeah, some of them were even shot or, or killed for collaborating. There was there was one famous case which happened on, on Walcheren, which is of course linked to the fifty second Lone Division, um, who'd actually she'd actually married a German soldier, and and she actually refused to leave him, preferring to march with them uh, and the German prisoners off to, to the war cages. Uh, and there's actually a picture uh, uh, from the IWM of that of the, that couple. You know, regardless of what you think about Germans and collaborators and all the rest of it, she looks defiant and he looks, <laughs> he looks quite, quite happy about it. Um, so it's interesting uh, that, that, that there's actually direct evidence of that happening in front of the guys of the 52nd mm. who would be reading this paper as well. So... But it goes the other way as well, doesn't it? Because you've got the Dutch women who are perceived as having lowered themselves. But then you've also got the likes of um, Hanny Shaft and the two sisters, Truce and Freddie. Is it Overstegen? Overstegen? Yeah, Overstegen. Yeah. Overstegen. And, and they were doing the complete opposite because they were working with a, a resistance cell. Co um, mm. A lot of women were code breaking and typing, or we've got the SOE girls as well. But these three worked as assassins. They were Dutch assassins. Yeah, oh, is that the ones that used to entice them with um, with that, promises of uh, of a little bit of how's your father? Yes, indeed. In, yeah, they did. They they would um, come up on some unsuspecting poor German lad and uh, whip him off into the woods and and shoot him. Basically, Hanny was captured, I think, and tortured yep. and executed. But I think the, the the sisters survived the war. There's a book by a lady called Sophie Poldermans. And it's mm -hmm. called seducing or killing, seducing and killing Nazis. Well, I mean, it's it, it's a really complicated subject because I think the other thing is as well, it's very easy for people that have never been occupied to judge the behaviour of people who have been occupied. Yeah. And of course, uh, Britain, thankfully, apart from the the Channel Islands, you know, they aren't occupied by the Germans, and and um, we, we were never put to that sort of test. It's a really fantastic film, believe it or not, by the Dutch um, director called. Uh, Paul Verhoeven, you'll know him from from Over the Top, 
uh, action movies. He actually did one called uh, The Black Book, which is about um, Jewish resistance, uh, Dutch resistance, and their interactions with the Nazis. And it's quite a good film in that it highlights how the the notions of good versus evil and who's on the right side and on the wrong side are, are a little bit confusing and a little bit... Um, a bit more nuanced, shall we say? A sort of sort of related subject. I mean, it's a bit over the top because it's a film, but it's got some really good and interesting parts about it, where where it's not as easy just to judge who's right and wrong. Well, I tell you what, I'll watch the film and you read the book. I will do. Deal. Tuesday, fifth of December, nineteen forty-four, Far East. Chinese troops have isolated an airstrip near Bamo, mopping up is continuing in Kaliwa. American submarines have sunk another 20 Japanese ships, including a cruiser and a destroyer. So I have a thing about submarines. Do you know how many submarines there were taking part in the Second World War? I have absolutely... I have 500. 500. Well, all in, everybody, 500. There we go. Not quite. The, the German Navy started the Second World War with 56 submarines. Okay, Bear in mind that Italy had about 110 or so and the French had 75. That sort of seems comparable almost. But by the, by the time we got to the end of the Second World War, German shipyards had built 1,156 U-boats. Holy cow, that's a lot of U-boats. Well, it's a lot of U-boats. And I've got a sneaky suspicion... As we get towards the end of the Lowlander, we might talk more about submarine pens and submarine building. We might. We in might. a certain German town called Bremen. Mm, we might indeed. Um, the, the other thing about submarines is, do you know what they were called? No, absolutely no idea. So we always refer to, to German subs as U-boats, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Undersea, undersea boot, literally undersea boat. But yeah. the other nations did have the decency to give some of their subs names, right? Go on. Yeah, brace yourself. So the Brits, we had um, the Alliance, the Ambush, Auriga, Artemis, Al- Alaric, Asheron and Ace, Amphion, Alderney, Ashetes, Aurochs, Astute, Afray, Artful and the Andrew. That was the Amphion class. E- easy for you to say, yeah, go on. <laughs> then you've got two explorers, the Explore and the Excalibur. Okay, so there's not many there. Yeah. But no, they- no, I'm, I'm right in thinking that British submarines still use the A the letter A is the, the, the first letter in there. Might do. I think they might do. I think we, yeah, know they man, do. we know a man called David could probably tell us. Yeah. Right. Compare that to the names of the Italian subs, okay? You've got the Da Vinci, Bar- <laughs> the, the Barbarigo, the Torelli, Morosini, Capellini, the Archimede, the Tazzoli, and the Shire and the Finzi. They've just gone into a whole other level. But it's, it's the US that really has the edge here. Flasher, Rasher, Barb and Drum, Bonefish, Guardfish, Tortog and Pogie, Parch, Perch, Grandpa, Bullhead and Bream, Greyback, Jack, Narwhal, Scamp and Wahoo. On Donner, on Blitzen, on... (laughs) (laughs) The Germans, they only ever called them by by their numbers. They didn't give them names at all. Do you know the interesting thing is I never knew what the U stood for in in U-Boat up until you said that. (laughs) And of course it makes so much more sense now that I can now understand. Oh yeah, under. (laughs) It is, it's German logic. What should we call it? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Although I think the last few they never launched. No, there were um, about 770, 780 or so were lost from enemy action. That's uh, surrender. I think, wasn't it the the U-Boat losses were like one in two people would be killed? Oh, that's her- it was it's her- horrendous. No, I don't fancy that at all. At least in the army, you can stand there and stick your hand up and say, I surrender. There is that. 
December the 5th, and this is a piece from Jottings from Home. Rail traffic between Greenock and Gorok was held up yesterday because of a landslide. Thousands of tonnes of masonry fell onto the line. A passenger train ran into the pile of debris, but it was travelling slowly and only three passengers in a forward carriage were hurt. I mean, the interesting thing there is it's mentioned Gorok and Greenock. Mm-hmm. Gorok is the, uh, I'm going to do this every week, Gurik is the is the ferry port that you get the Aran ferry to <laughs> if it's in bad weather. Do I have to find a link to Bergen Op yeah. Zoom now then? Yes, you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing, the other interesting thing about Greenock, apart from my ancestors coming from there, but we'll move quickly on, mm-hmm. is that is where um, George Blake, who we mentioned last week, the author of Mountain Flood, that's where he's from. So this got me thinking because when we go to have a look in the archives and the British newspaper archive is absolutely brilliant for this kind of thing, we yeah. find out a little bit of information about the landslide at Greenock. That's fair enough. But what caught my eye was an article underneath that, which was talking about war memorials and advisory committees, advisory committees, it's easy for me to say, <laughs> advisory committees that were starting to discuss what kind of memorials should be erected after after the conflict finished? And this sentence caught my eye. An open discussion followed the conversation on behalf of the War Memorials Advisory Council. And it seemed to be generally held that the memorials after this war would be of a more utilitarian nature than formerly. And I just wondered why, whether it was down to resources, economy, or whether it's the fact that there's been a decision to commemorate war in a different way. Um, I'm not so sure, but actually, I mean, just off the top of my head, there's not that many dedicated Second World Memorials. They're, they're just, the Second World War ones are just kind of lumped onto the First World War ones, aren't they? Some of them are, some of them are. Yeah. But, but what's what's got my head going is the fact that at the end, we haven't come to the end of the war yet, but there are already yeah. decisions being taken about what kind of memorials will be erected. I wonder how quickly after the war or after an event that names were inscribed yeah. on, the, on them, because... I say, like my village one, we've got, uh, I think we've got about seven Second World War ones Mm. on there. And I wonder if it was done at the time or if it was done a couple of years after. But, uh, I mean, I have to say, when it comes to war memorials, I think one of my all-time, I don't know if this is the right word, favourite, is uh, the Women in War Memorial on the next to Cenotaph. Yes. That is a fantastic one. I don't know if that's utilitarian or what, but it's just brilliant, just the, the, the helmets and the coats hung up. Uh, hello, Sunray. This is Abel Baker One. Message over. Uh, hello, Abel Baker One. This is Sunray. Send over. Uh, Sunray, Abel Baker One here. New battlefield tour at Germany and Netherlands, October 2024. Over. Abel Baker One. This is Sunray. Roger. Over. Uh, Sunray, this is Abel Baker One. The tour will be following in the footsteps of Peter White and with the jocks. Over. Uh, Abel Baker 1, this is Sunray. Sounds good, over. Say again, please. Uh, Sunray, this is Abel Baker 1. For more information, please go to www.walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. That's walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. Over. Abel Baker 1, Roger over. 
Uh, Sunray, roll me over in the clover, over. Erbelbecker one, this is Sunray, that's quite enough of that. Get off the net, please. December 6, 1944, Russia. More successes were won by the Red Army in southwest Hungary yesterday. Two towns on the eastern shore of Lake Balatan have been reached. The lake is 50 miles long and 6 miles wide. Further south, they still have to capture... You bastard. Why did you put that one? Sizgetvar. 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 It's easy for you to say. Right. Okay, well, they've captured a town south of that, that lake, basically. Okay. Uh, the, uh, so Lake Balatan, we're going to hear more about Lake Balatan next year because that's where it all falls down in March 1945. Okay. Hitler, Hitler's ordered, um, he, he ends up ordering that Budapest should be retaken. Mm-hmm. This is the um, Operation Conrad and Operation Spring Awakening. Yeah. But at the minute, what ha- what's happened is that you've got the Germans have got to decide whether they push on or, or get into street-by-street fighting. Um, they've lost their hold on Budapest. It's it's not a good look for the, for Germany at this point in time. Things yeah. start to get very, very, very nasty and messy in and around Budapest and, and Hungary. <coughs> what was that? Just you, just shush. <laughs> December eighth, nineteen forty four. The new penicillin factory at Speak near Liverpool should be ready by spring. It will employ about three hundred and fifty people. Mm-hmm. What was his bloody name? He clipped. He cut himself in a rose bush. Well, that's a that's a, a, a an urban myth, actually. Is it? Yes, it is. Well, why did they say it on a fucking documentary then? <laughs> no, it's the actual guy. There's a guy. There's a photograph of the guy who cut himself, got sepsis, and then they treated him. But then they ran out of penicillin to treat him enough. So you're not talking about Albert Alexander, are you? That is that him. Yeah. So the plant at Speak, that that became the biggest factory in Europe. Right. Oh, no, it became the biggest factory to produce penicillin by um, fermentation. That's right. Right, okay. And, of course, this is our tie-in with the Nobel, not Peace Prize, this is the tie-in with the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine this week because it was Sir Alexander Fleming, uh... Ernst Chain and Howard Florey that won the prize. They tied for the prize for the discovery of penicillin and its curative effect in various infectious diseases. Uh, well, it's amazing. I mean, I, um, I mean, of course, Alexander Fleming gets gets all of the uh, gets all of the accolades now and again, but we, all, we always forget about the other two, don't we? Yeah. Okay, my bumper fact this week is, did you know that the team turned their lab into a penicillin factory by using bedpans to start off with? I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, following on my trend for linking everything with, uh, with, with where I'm from in Scotland, yeah. Alexander Fleming was born in Darville in Ayrshire, which is not far from uh, the other Baron. So there we go, we managed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> December 6th, 1944, Greece. The position in Athens last night was more serious. Fighting has continued and British troops have been in action. Members of the ELAS, or Ellis, attacked a prison guarded by our troops. Our men suffered few casualties. That's not exactly what happened, is it? Uh, yeah, well, I'm led to believe that no, this is not what happened. It was, it was a little bit more complex than that, and, and this doesn't really give a fair representation. Because... Before the war, Greece was ruled by 
what's his name? Oh, Ioannis, Ioannis, Ioannis Metaxas. And he was supported by King George II and the British. Mm -hmm. Metaxas was keen to keep Greece out of the hostilities. Italy had other ideas and invaded. And Mm -hmm. we got to a point where British and the Allied forces were kind of invited in to, to help out. That was the beginning of 1941. But Germany came to the aid of its ally, swept through Greece, took Athens, and the king fled. First to Crete, and then he went off to London, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so now we've got Greece, which is living or existing under a tripartite German, Bulgarian, and Italian occupation, September Mm -hmm. 1941. And what happens next is the Communist Party sets up the National Liberation Front, which when you translate is EAM, and its military wing, which is the one you've just mentioned, ELAS, the ELAS, okay, in spring of 1942. And their, their whole purpose, their whole mission is to resist that occupation. The EAM, which is fairly well coordinated, controls much of Greece at that point, except for Crete. And it has a membership of about 2 million people, I think. It kind of runs a government in absence of a government. And this is where it gets complicated because the Greek government in exile is opposed to the EAM that has set up a government. I just need a quick, uh, I need a cup of tea or something to keep with this, but carry on. <laughs> you you had Royal Scots and Royal Scots Fusiliers last That's week. That's a good point, yeah. yeah. This is, this is the, the, the Judean people's front. And the, definitely, the definitely. People's front of Judea. You've but go on. You've then got another resistance group called the National Greek Republican League, which is the EDES, okay, which was anti-communist and opposed to the monarchist government in exile. So, you've got so they all, don't like anybody. They don't like anybody. You've got all these factions sort of rotating in and out, right? British forces come in. That's Scobie. Lieutenant General Ronald Scobie brings his forces in in mid-October and Mm -hmm. installs a provisional government that includes members of the EAM. You with me so far? Yep. So that seemed like a good idea at the time. But what happens is, what is it, September, October? October. Yeah. um, The German forces evacuate Athens and Churchill wakes up to the idea that the EAM is perhaps a little bit more communist than he realised. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so, so he he doesn't so much authorise, he makes it possible to facilitate the possibility of the inkling that it might potentially be an idea to quell any uprising. And unfortunately what happens is um, the army opens fire mm-hmm. in Syntagma Square, and 28 civilians were killed, mostly young boys and girls. There was a protest going on, and um, we, we opened fire on them. And it led to <sighs> all kinds of uproar afterwards. I, I just think it's worth pointing out that it, even now you've got forces at play that are presenting, not representing or misrepresenting, but they are presenting aspects of the war in a particular way, um, I, I guess with the, with the pursuit of a particular outcome. Now, when I watch Captain Corelli's Mandolin... He didn't mention any of this. Well, Nicolas Cage had screenplay rights on that, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) And this week's Thought for the Day is brought to us from friend of the show and returning guest, Oliver Cromwell, written in 1645. I don't really like taking lectures off Oliver Cromwell, but okay. Why not? Well, he was an absolute shit, wasn't he? I've, well, I've just finished a book on the Restoration, and they were miserable. Well, Cromwell's lot. Yeah, they're just utterly miserable. <laughs> anyway. 
things of the mind we look for no compulsion, but that of light and reason. Well, you know what that's about, don't you? I have absolutely. I never know what thoughts. I, I will say this every week. I never know what thoughts the day's about. So what is it about? Tell me. <laughs> well, that's, that's Cromwell getting the Presbyterian church into working order. And he's coming up against uh, the independence. He's got the implications of Scottish doctrine. He's got the Episcopalians, the Papists, the unbelievers. He's having to, to, to take them all on. And what he's saying is... Um, it's it's the old you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink you can't make anyone believe the way yeah, that yeah. you want them to you have to let them decide for themselves although he had a bloody good try didn't well, he, he did. by by force he did. although ultimately um it, it didn't it didn't last longer than him did it i mean the minute he popped his clogs it all went back to where it was and i would say that's what you get for banning christmas and dancing oh, i thought you were going to link clogs to bergen up soon then oh i should have shouldn't i yeah, that was a missed opportunity. Oh well, thanks, Oliver. I'm sure we'll see. I'm sure we'll hear from Oliver Cromwell again. They seem to like Oliver Cromwell and the uh, the education branch, don't they? Yeah, they do. And finally, this week, 10th of December, jottings from home. Twenty-two thousand gallons of petrol are used for cigarette lighters every year in England. That's an awful lot of petrol, particularly when there's rationing going on. It's a lot of. I mean, I, I, I say I don't know how how far you could drive a Sherman tank on twenty two gallons of petrol, but that's a lot. That's a lot of smoking and a lot of lighting. Yeah. Um, but I do like the way it's just they've just plunked this fact in there, and I wonder where they got this fact. Have you got any ideas? Uh, yes, 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 yes. So last week we were talking about the white paper. I bet ah. we'll have to go and look it up, but I bet that that fact has come from the middle of the white paper last week when they were. Um, when the government had revealed the statistics about the war effort to date over the last five years, it's the kind of it's the kind of number that would have jumped off the page. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I'm pretty sure there was petrol rationing. I mean, <laughs> that's an awful lot of fuel to be taking out just for lighters in Ooh. England. On that note, should we wrap it up this week? I think it's yes. On that firebomb. <laughs> All right. <laughs> bye, Andy. Bye, bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. And now the classified results for the week ending 10th of December 1944. English League South. Aldershot 3, Chelsea 4. Arsenal 2, Tottenham 3. Brentford 7, Portsmouth 1. Clapton O's 2, Brighton 2. Crystal Palace 2, Watford 3. Fulham 2, Reading 3. Millwall 2, Luton 3 Southampton 4 Queen's Park Rangers 5 West Ham 2 Charlton 0 English League North Aston Villa 5 Leicester 0 Barnsley 5 Lincoln 3 Bradford 1 Gateshead 4 Burnley 5 Blackpool 1 Bury 2 Man City 1 Chester 3, Liverpool 2. 
Derby 7, Mansfield 1. Doncaster 4, Bradford City 1. Everton 2, Wrexham 2. Grimsby 0, Hull 0. Halifax 2, Blackburn 1. Leeds United 2, Huddersfield 3. Manchester United 2, Crewe 0. Middlesbrough 4, York 3. Newcastle 3, Hartlepool 0. Northampton 2, Birmingham 1. Nottingham 1, Sheffield 0. Oldham 0, Rochdale 2. Preston 1, Accrington Stanley 3. Rotherham 2, Notts County 1. Sheffield United 0, Chesterfield 1. Southport 0, Bolton 2. Stockport County 2, Tranmere Rovers 1. Stoke 5, Coventry 0. Sunderland 6, Darlington 2. Walsall 1, West Brom 2. Wolverhampton Wanderers 2, Port Vale 0. English League West Aberarnon 5, Bath City 6. Bristol City 5, Laurels Athletic 1. Cardiff 3, Swansea 1. Scottish League South Albion 3, Falkirk 1. Clyde 1, Third Larnock 2. Dumbarton 3, St Mirren 1. Hamilton 1, Hibs 1. Hearts 3, Motherwell 3. Morton 4, Airdrieonians 2. Queen's Park 0, Celtic 2. Rangers 2, Partick 0. Scottish League North East. Aberdeen 2, Wraith Rovers 0. Dundee 3, Dunfermline 1. East Fife 1, Hearts 1. Falkirk 0, Arbroath 0. Right, I'm sorry, my cat is snoring. Can you hear the cat snoring? There you go. There you go. Sorry, cat. Bye bye. She's not happy. They went in there and they just saw the bloody Germans off. They were hideous good. <laughs>